You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Continuing through the Gospel of Luke, and we come to chapter 7, uh, verses 35, and we'll move all the way into chapter 8, the first three verses. And I uh, continue just to be amazed by Luke, uh, amazed by Luke's Gospel of what he includes and how he includes it, and just the way in which uh, he seems to be uh, very deliberate in his uh, way in which he's organizing this. And as I've been saying, Luke 7 and 8 seem to be very much uh, organized around the theme of, of Jesus' power to save. We've seen him able to save uh, a man from burial, uh, saving a man from death itself, that he saves from uh, storms, he saves from demonic possession, and saves from death again. And then we come to uh, verses uh, 35 uh, to the end, uh, verses 36 to the end, and we see this wonderful uh, episode where he continues Luke's theme of showing the way in which God cares for different people groups, right? We've seen the way in which uh, already he has uh, shown care to Gentiles with the centurion's servant. Here he'll accept the, the, the invitation of a Pharisee to come and to dine with him. And whatever society's view was of women at this time, we can see the way in which Jesus responds to and treats Women. He takes a very biblical view that women are created in the image of God, and because of that, they are greatly loved by Jesus. But then Luke includes what I think these two episodes together, uh, because we see something almost ironic. We see this great religious leader who, with all of his knowledge, completely misses the point. And yet this woman who the only designation we have is that she's a sinner. She's the one who gets it. She's the one who understands this healing, this forgiveness, this peace are extravagant examples of God's mercy and grace upon those who don't deserve it. And as such, we see the way in which she then responds out of this great joy. And later on, we see the example of other women who have been healed and saved to be those who now follow Jesus and actually to the point of funding his ministry. And so we come now to this uh, wonderful example of grace and the response to it. So verse 36 of chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. 
One owed 5,500 denarii and the other 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we come to this uh, very interesting set of episodes. Right? We have, we have a, another feast. We have a very short and uh, very pointed parable. And then we end up with this addendum, if you will, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, of forgiveness and the response to it. So we begin with this feast. And think about what just came before this passage. Uh, Jesus, who had been accused constantly of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, meaning he was somebody who, who mixed with these people, who went to these feasts, and who made friends of these people. And then what happens? Well, he's invited to another feast with a Pharisee, but then a, a sinner shows up. And just with that statement that came before it, we sort of know in which the, the flow of the uh, event and what will take place. But it's interesting with the, the three people present, the Pharisee, Jesus, and the sinner, right? We, we see in which the ways in which Jesus is actually showing grace to the Pharisee, to Simon, and trying to help him understand what it is this woman already does. And so we have a feast with a Pharisee. And I think as we come to this, we, we generally have a negative view of Pharisees, and obviously there's, there's uh, the way in which the, the picture is painted of them, that becomes a, a, rightly, uh, a right way to view them. They seem as, as adversaries of Jesus time and time again. But here we have a Pharisee who just invites Jesus uh, to dinner. It doesn't seem as if he's doing this to trap him. Uh, it may just be that he's simply inviting him here to make up his own mind to, to meet this Jesus face to face. And again, this seems to, to allude back to the earlier one, which the centurion uh, sent out emissaries to invite Jesus, and Jesus just goes along with it. Here, the Pharisee asks Jesus, and what does Jesus do? Well, he goes along with it. He goes to this feast. And I think we have to see the, the difference between feasts back then and feasts today. You can sort of uh, see it in the text here that these feasts were public events, unlike our feasts uh, we usually don't just leave our windows and doors open expecting people to gather around to listen to our dinner table uh, discussions, but that's what would happen here is that it would be in, a, in an area that was somewhat open 
to the public. And so people who weren't invited could come and stand around the edges to basically be able to hear uh, the discussion that would take place, especially with having uh, somebody like Simon, a Pharisee, and Jesus. Well, I have to admit, that would be a very interesting dinner conversation. And so these people come and they, they gather around here. But then something seems to be very surprising to Simon is that this woman comes in who is known around the city as a sinner. She's known as a sinner. And you'll have to note what Luke doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us what her sins are. I just think that's interesting that he doesn't tell us what her sins are because clearly from the point of the text, that's not the point, is it? The point isn't what she's done. Uh, the point is that she is forgiven. And from that forgiveness, that brings her to this point in which she does this uh, rather uh, extravagant display in front of all these people. Right? The point is that she is forgiven and that from that forgiveness and peace, that is what brought her to Jesus. And so we see this ex extravagant devotion. Right? She has this alabaster flask full of ointment, uh, like a, an oil mixed with kind of perfumes. And she then starts to pour it on his feet. She's weeping there with tears of joy. And then she has to let down her hair and uses that to dry his feet. And all the while, she's continually kissing them. Jesus seems to be absolutely devoted and joyful at, at knowing the one who has saved her. And while we're not quite the same as agrarian settings, wearing sandals in which our feet would generally not be quite as clean as they are today, nonetheless, if someone were doing this, this would be a sign of, uh, of, of absolute submission, wouldn't it? It'd be very strange uh, even uh, today. But it's a sign of devotion. Think about what John had said, that in the presence of Jesus, he was so unworthy that he couldn't even be the one to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals, that he was so far below who Jesus actually was. And I think that's what we're to see here, that this, this lady knows what this forgiveness is, knows who Jesus is, and then through the, the working of the Holy Spirit, she knows that Jesus is far above her, but she has this wonderful, extravagant response showing that she really has been saved. You know, I think of the way in which you, you hear oftentimes about uh, proposal stories, right? The, the point of, of, of setting up this elaborate event, if, if you husbands have done this, uh, is to show, well, intending to show your future wife your love for her. And that's generally what their, uh, their intent is. Uh, for my part, I think two things need to be said before I tell you what I did. One, I'm not a great singer, as many of you will know. Some of you are going, that's an understatement, which case. I also despise country music. I hate country music. Uh, and that needs to be said, because my proposal involved me singing country music to Laura. Um, and if that isn't an extravagant example of how much I love her, then I don't know what is. But nonetheless, the, 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 these proposal stories, you would do something like this to show your would-be wife your great love for her. That's not saying you have to do these. We have friends of ours who were in the middle of a fight in, in a grocery store car park, and at the end of it, the husband just got down on one knee and proposed to her. So proposal stories can take all sorts of things. But the, 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 the thing that we're to see here is her extravagant response to extra, extravagant grace. 
And then so during this encounter where Simon's dinner party and possibly the conversation he was hoping to have is derailed now that there's this sinful woman here, Simon seems to think to himself that, well, clearly this man's not a prophet. Clearly he's not a prophet because that woman is a sinner. The whole city just knows that. She's a sinner and she's touching him. What's interesting with Simon here is he's sitting as, as judge over this woman. He's assuming, he's assuming that God shares his judgment. He, he's assuming that he is right in judging this woman and that God would share his view. And what's amazing to me, I think what's amazing to me about this passage here today is that simply God didn't. I mean, that's what I, I find amazing to think on to dwell upon that, that this man, Simon, this religious leader looking at this woman judges her to be unworthy of God's grace, assuming God thinks the same way. And in this passage, we're told clearly God <laughs> thought the opposite. That yes, this woman is a sinner, but also she's created in his image. She is a daughter worth saving and lovingly incorporating into his family. And so Jesus then answers Simon's private question. Think of the irony there. Well, this man clearly can't be a prophet because he doesn't know this woman, except then Jesus then knows what Simon is thinking. But more importantly, think about this. More importantly, Jesus knows this woman. Jesus knows this woman's past. Jesus, he knows what her sins are. And he knows so much more. He knows her thoughts. He knows her actions. He knows her past. He knows everything about her. And he doesn't turn away in disgust. In fact, he says what she is doing is a proper response to the grace that she has experienced. So Jesus knows her past, but I think more importantly, right, he knows her future. He knows her future. And Jesus ends this part here by turning to Simon and say, can I tell you something, Simon? Can I tell you something? I think Simon probably had enough uh, awareness to know that what's coming is probably not going to be favorable. He probably knows that this is sort of a, a setup, if you will, that what's coming next by the way in which Jesus says, can I tell you something? That something was coming down the pipeline towards him. But what do we see here already in this feast? I think what we see here is we see this, this picture in which God, in which Jesus, he actually knows you. Like deep down, he, he knows you, warts and all. He, he knows what you think. He knows what you've done. He knows what you will do. He knows your sins and the worst things about you actually probably better than you do. And it's why we talk about sins of omission and commission, about sins in which we know we did sins, but then half the time we pray going, Lord, forgive me, because I just know there's sins I don't even know about. And yet the Lord Jesus, he knows those sins. I mean, the worst thing would be to, to lie to yourself and to conceal and to think that you could hide something from God, that he doesn't deep down know just how bad you are. And then in the midst of that, as we see in this episode here, is that there's tremendous amount of good news because God loves you. 
God came to rescue you. And he came to do that while knowing who you actually are. He came to save you from sin, death, the devil, slavery, and ultimately destruction. I mean, we would say we, we know our children and we know our spouses. We know one another, but really we don't know people to the depths that the Lord Jesus knows us. And then again, think of those words from Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him in order to redeem a people and to bring those united who would believe by faith and bring them into his family for that joy is why he went to the cross. So then finally, he turns to Simon and, and gives this very short parable in verses 41 through 50, a very short parable and then an explanation to it. He says, there are two debtors. There are two debtors. There's a money lender and he has two debtors. One of those owes him 500 days wages. That's what a denarii would roughly be equivalent to. And one owed 50 days wages. I tried to calculate this up. It'd be something approximately like one of them owed 60 thousand pounds while the order other owed six thousand pounds so you're looking at a at a gigantic difference here between six thousand which is by no means a small amount of money versus sixty thousand i mean you could just think of what a, a credit card payment would be like on sixty thousand dollars worth of of interest payments racking on top of that there's this there is this time in which you, you get to a point where you know there's no way this can be paid off but actually, Jesus says both of these, both of these couldn't pay. The 6,000-pound uh, debt and the 60,000-pound debt. And that both of them, uh, during this time, would both be sent off to debtor's prison. And the moneylender would have every right to do that until they can pay off their debt. But then, incredibly, there's this twist to this parable. I mean, of course, there's going to be one, but we have a, a moneylender who forgives debt, a moneylender who forgives debt. Actually, when we were first married, we ended up racking up a huge amount of credit card debt, uh, thousands of dollars on very foolish spending. But during that time, I never thought once that I should call the credit card company and ask if they would just forgive that debt. Just wipe it clean, right? I would have been laughed off the phone. But clearly what Jesus is showing here, right? It's, it's a picture of God's grace, right? In this parable, God is that moneylender. God who deserves this payment. He deserves justice. And again, you think of the, the ways in which you could pull this parable out just a little bit more. For this moneylender to forgive these debts means it actually is going to cost him something. You can't just wipe away these debts as if they never existed. Someone has to pay for it. Someone loaned out that money or lent out that money and is never going to get it back. And so to forgive that debt requires someone to pay for it, someone to forfeit it. And so then Jesus asks Simon, who, who will love him more? Who will respond with greater joy? And Simon correctly notes that's the one forgiven of the 6,000 pounds. Like that would be astounding to think of the, the crushing weight of that debt and for all in just one instance for it to be forgiven. And the, the joy that that person would feel knowing that they are now freed from that burden. 
And so Jesus, after this parable, then in verses 44 through 48, he goes on to then explain what he's talking about. So again, turning to Simon, he says, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman here? Well, I mean, of course Simon sees this woman, right? It's a, it's, it's a comical, rhetorical question, isn't it? I mean, the woman has all eyes on her right now. Simon, do you see this woman? Well, of course Simon saw her. I wonder, though, if Jesus' question is, do you actually see her? Do you see her the way that I see her? Jesus, as this great prophet, can see inside of her can see who she really is, how she is really forgiven, where Simon can only see on the surface level and know from the history. But Simon doesn't actually see her. And then Jesus goes on to then use this, though, to speak of the way in which Simon has failed in his kind of common hospitality. It seems like what Jesus is getting at is that uh, Simon didn't even show Jesus the basic common hospitality. Right, Being able to wash his feet or to anoint his hair or even just a kiss upon the cheek as a welcome for him being here. And it just kind of starts to beg that question, why did Simon do that? The text doesn't tell us, but I mean, any number of things, it could be he thinks Jesus beneath him. I mean, think of it. Jesus is a wandering itinerant preacher who has no home, has no money. And has uh, this this rabble-rousing gang of disciples that follow him. Or maybe it was simply that Simon, while wanting to hear Jesus, wanted to keep him at arm's length because of the trouble if he were to show any uh, uh, goodwill towards him. We don't really know, but Jesus uses that as a picture to show how Simon seems to have failed to understand who it is that's in his presence today. And then he moves on to forgiveness of sins, that her sins were forgiven, that, that she found forgiveness, and that leads to this demonstration. And I think it's, it's important to not make the, the, the mistake of thinking that this action that she's done is what earns her forgiveness, but rather that Jesus makes it a point to say, your faith has saved you, that what she's doing right now flows out of the peace that she has with God. Your sins are forgiven, right? In this parable, the one who forgives is God. And that's what then begins to raise even more interesting conversation at this dinner party. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And isn't Luke making this uh, a point that is seemingly continually repeated? Right? He forgives the paralytic man earlier at another uh, instance of being in somebody's home. Well, certainly the, the question that they're asking is, is who can forgive sins? But actually, it's bigger than that, right? As Jesus says in that uh, earlier episode with the paralytic man, it's, it's not just the forgiving of sins, but it's actually meaning it, right? I can all day long absolve you of all your sins, but it doesn't matter. It matters if Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. That when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, the wonderful thing that happens is that he means it, that, that it's actually true. I mean, isn't that the gospel message, that you come to Jesus to find forgiveness and you actually find it? And then Jesus sends this woman away, go in peace. 
Go in peace. Go knowing that God loves you. Go now knowing that you are forgiven, that you have a place in the kingdom, that you are highly valued and loved by the creator of the universe. Go back to your home now justified before God. This woman has peace with God. When we think of this in this parable that Jesus gave, I mean, the reality as the rest of Scripture will play out is that the debt that we owe to God is much greater than 60,000 pounds. It's actually more than 60 million pounds. It's because of, of who we have sinned against. We have sinned against an infinite God, which means we are guilty of an infinite payment. And there's only one who can actually do that, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Jesus, who wasn't guilty, pays our debt on our behalf. I mean, think about just how extravagant that sounds. Why would someone do that? I mean, no earthly moneylender would ever do that. No bank is ever going to forgive your debt if they plan on staying in the banking business. I mean, goodness, we find it hard to forgive people of, of small slights. And yet God is willing to forgive you of your cosmic rebellion against him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just forgive you, he then adopts you. He then brings you into his kingdom, his family. And then on top of that promises that he will then never let you go. That nothing can separate you now from his love. I mean, I wonder if we've just diluted salvation so much that we forget what an amazing thing it is, how costly it is, and how much it shows God's love for us. I mean, when you really dwell upon what happens in salvation, you could not come away with anything other than God must be a God of love. Well, then Luke adds, I think, this small addendum here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. You have the, the kingdom advancing. Again, Luke continually draws, draws us back to that theme of Jesus who is moving around to proclaim the kingdom of God. His disciples are with him. But then he just notes uh, in passing that there's also these women who come with him. So there's the group of disciples, there's the apostles, and there then are these women. And these women have been healed of diseases, healed of infirmities, healed of demonic possession. One particular example he brings out is Mary called Magdalene. She's from the, the town of Magdalene. And she had seven demons cast out of her. And yes, the, the text means she literally had seven demons cast out of her. But also seven being this sign of, of completeness or fullness. We're, we're to have this picture that she was fully controlled by demons. And yet Jesus frees her. And then second, we have Joanna and Susan. Susanna. Joanna is the wife of Chusa, who's Herod's household manager. It's a fascinating little thing to just put in there. That, that Chusa was the one who would have controlled Herod's estate, much like Joseph did for Potiphar and later for Pharaoh. That This word can also be used of governors and proc, uh, procurators. And so it's possible to understand this title as meaning this, this guy was pretty high up in Herod's household. And his wife had become a believer, that the gospel is penetrating everywhere. Luke will tell us later that there are priests, there are Pharisees, 
who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are Gentiles, there are women, there are sinners, there are fishermen, there are tax collectors. And then what do these women do? And it, 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 to me, again, it just seems interesting that what Luke highlights here is what the women are doing. Not, not the disciples, but it is the women here who have experienced this great deliverance from earthly and spiritual problems, experienced grace and forgiveness of cosmic treason. They have peace with God, and now they give of their time and their money in order to further Jesus's ministry. I mean, remember, Jesus doesn't have a job. He doesn't have income. He doesn't have a house. He has almost nothing, it seems, but probably the clothes on his back. And so he's completely dependent upon others, and God provides. But it's just funny to see the ordinary ways in which God provides for Jesus's ministry. And so just in closing, just to think through this. I mean, these are all examples of grace in people's lives. And, and, and the ways in which from that grace, from experiencing that grace, this is the way they then now act. Again, that's why probably the song Amazing Grace is so commonly sung is that this man, John Newton, knew what it was like to be a literal slave, to be then freed from that and to be freed from spiritual bondage, right? Do you know yourself to be a debtor on the, on the hook for an infinite debt? But then do you know that God fully, truly, and completely forgives you? That he forgives you and loves you and welcomes you in and if you don't know that, come to Jesus today. But then as we've seen throughout this, how will you respond? How do we respond? Right? Jesus has this interesting little statement there, right? He who is forgiven of a little loves little. But she who has been forgiven of much loves much. <laughs> do we love little? Do we think we were good? That we were, we were good enough. We weren't that bad. And so we have this little love for God and others. Do we not understand the, the terrible weight of sin against a holy, infinite being? And the fact that it cost this being, his one and only eternal son. Because if that's what actually happened, then what you and I have been forgiven of is something that is massive. Right? And the right response is like Mary, Martha's sister, who falls at Jesus' feet. The result is like these women here following Jesus, contributing of their time, their treasures, and their talents to see the kingdom of God advance. The result is, is like the woman pictured at the end of chapter 7, devotion to Christ, love of Christ, because of his great love for her. And so just simply, salvation has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how, how are we responding? How will you respond to that today? Amen. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk for more. Thank you.